Well, good morning. Last week, we talked about Jesus crying out, pleading with the people to follow him as it was his last, final public appearance. And this week, we leave the public, Christ leaves the public, and he goes private as Christ ministers and teaches his disciples. So let's open our Bibles to John 13, verses 1 through 15. John 13, verses 1 through 15. And I've entitled this message, God Shows Us How to Wash Feet. So as we begin, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we praise you. Father, what an opportunity it is that we can come together and glorify you corporately as the body of Christ. Thank you for this time that we've been able to sing our hearts out to you, Father. We ask now, Father, as we dive into your word, that you would work on our hearts, change all of us for your glory, help us to have a a grander view of you, a greater view of you, a higher view of you, a holier view of you, passionate for Christ. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. John 13, starting out in verse 1, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So Christ's going to meet unfathomable suffering and pain. Who is his attention on? The ones he loves. Again, it says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, it says. Christ takes ownership of the disciples like we would take ownership of our own children. My children, Luke, Silas, and Joby, are my boys, and I love them. I have so much pride and joy in them. And we see with Christ the personal relationship, the close fellowship, and the deep love that he had for the disciples. But it was more than just a must love or a have to love. It wasn't like I have to eat my vegetables sort of love. No, Christ's love was a get-to love. It was a want-to love. But you would think that Christ loved the disciples because they were so dedicated, that they were so loyal, that they were so full of love of Christ themselves. But we know the rest of the story. We know what they're about to do, right? We find out the reality of their love For Jesus, as Peter denies him, what, three times, right? And we can't really say anything better about the rest of the disciples either. As Matthew 26, 56 says, all the disciples left him and fled. All of them. And what is more surprising is that Christ knew that they would all abandon him. As he tells Peter... At the end of John 13, 38, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times talking to Peter. 
and they all ran away and hid to save their own necks while Christ was abused, while he was beaten and finally killed. And Christ knows, he knew that they would abandon him, which reveals the lack of love the disciples actually had for Christ. And these are the guys he loved. We may be thinking, why in the world did Christ love such flaky, fickle disciples, right? I mean, these were real flawed individuals who don't seem to understand what Christ is doing or saying half of the time, right? And yet Christ loved them so much. Well, I'd ask you if we are any different than the disciples. When Christ saved us, were we flawed? Were we hard-headed? Were we struggling with all sorts of sin? What about now after we've turned to Christ in faith and repentance? Are we still flawed? Do we still struggle with sin? What about hard-headedness? My wife reminds me of that all the time. Well, this leads to point number one. Christ's love is not predicated on our goodness. Let me say that again. Christ's love is not predicated on our goodness. Now, you might be wondering, what does predicated mean? Well, it means this. Christ's love isn't dependent on our goodness. Christ wasn't waiting around for us to become good on our own. Or wait at all for us to be good because he would have never chose us in the first place, right? But scripture tells us that he took the initiative and loved us when we were at our worst. When we were the most unlovable. That's when he loved us. As Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The demonstration of the cross is proof of God's love. Amen? But someone may object and say, doesn't scripture say we need to have good works to be saved? And of course I would say yes, of course. If we are true followers of Christ, we will have good works. But those good works don't earn God's love. Because good works show us or show that we already have God's love. Good works show that the Holy Spirit is already working in us and through us if we have good works. Good works prove that we are already children of God. Similarly, as a parent, I love my children because they are my children. My love for children isn't measured or dependent on how good they are or what they accomplish for me. For example, Silas, our four-year-old, sometimes has a hard time doing his chores. Sometimes he makes up excuses why he doesn't actually get them finished. 
I know this is unique to children, right? You've never experienced this, right? He will say, he's four, he will say, Daddy, I was thirsty. So I was working so hard, I need to get a drink. And then when I got a drink, I forgot I was doing my chores. Or he may say, Daddy, you know, Joby, who's our two-year-old, he said he needs some help fixing a toy, so I went and helped him. Or, Daddy, I just really needed to stop and pray because I really wasn't doing my chores up to glorifying the Lord. But even when my son makes lame, let me say it again, lame excuses, possibly even trying to deceive his daddy and show his laziness, I still love him the same. Although he may need daddy to lovingly spank him on the bottom. Our children don't earn our love. And we can't earn God's love either. J.C. Ryle says this, the love of Christ to sinners is the very essence and marrow of the gospel. I wonder this morning if we know the supernatural love that only comes from God. If we have turned to Christ in repentance and faith, if we are true followers of Christ, if we have seen our sinfulness for what it is and we've been transformed by God's grace, if we can say yes to these things, then we must rest in the finished work of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Well, verse 2, we'll have to come back to, but it says this, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon. Son, Simon's son to betray him, verse 3 is where we're going to go. But this verse 3, before I read it, it should blow our minds. It should really cause us to reread it again. And it says this, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. So Jesus was entrusted with everything, Right? And if we did a word study in the Greek for everything, we would conclude, we would find out that everything means everything. Correct, right. Christ was king of kings. He was lord of lords. There was never have been a ruler, an emperor, a king who was given all authority, who was giving everything like Christ. So Christ wasn't an ordinary king, to say the least. I mean... What emperor could say they created the world? What king could say they own everything? What leader could say they are one with God? What ruler could say they are God? But what is more mind-boggling is Christ's next move. What he does for the disciples. I mean, he is God in the flesh. We have established that. And, and and we know this. And we know that he has everything under his feet. And what does he do next? Verse 4. Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wiped them with the towel that was wrapped around him. 
So before dinner, Christ gets up, takes his garment off, grabs a towel, and ties it around his waist, and then he pours some water into a large bowl and begins to wash the disciples' feet. I mean, the person stuck with the job of washing people's dirty, stinky feet was often left to the slave of the home. But Christ, without flinching, serves his beloved disciples, the ones he loves. But this was an outflow of his theology. His love for others was an overflow of his love for God. Which leads to point number two. Christ displayed God's love by caring for others. Point number two says that Christ displayed God's love by caring for others. Christ's theology wasn't sitting up in an ivory tower somewhere collecting dust. Christ's love wasn't cold. Christ's love wasn't stale. Christ's love wasn't dead. But his theology, his doctrine... His faith was active. It was vibrant. It was alive. It led to caring for those that were right in front of him. Christ washing the disciples' feet was an example of a life that served sacrificially to glorify God by caring for others. And this love Christ displayed was a way of life. It wasn't, be, it wasn't a flash of good feelings it's like the healthy eater's motto, which says, healthy eating is a lifestyle, right? Not a diet. And similarly, our love, our caring for others is a lifestyle, not a short-term fad or random acts of kindness, but a life filled with kindness to those around us. Amen? What is the old saying? People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. I mean, there's a lot of truth in that statement, right? How much easier would it be to talk about Christ with our neighbor or our coworker if we had real rapport, if we had real relationship with them? What would our families, our friendships look like if we selflessly poured ourselves out for them. As we sacrifice for others, as we go out of our way to love others, as people see that we really care, they will naturally open up their hearts to us and allow us to speak truth into their lives. What about in the church? Do we really care for each other like Christ cared for the disciples? Galatians 6.10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Well, I must admit that I experienced this love at Don and Liz's Connect Group, which I had the pleasure of visiting last week. They started with prayer requests and praises, as, and as each person opened up their hearts, the rest of the group was engaged. They were dialed in. They were asking questions. They were taking careful notes so they could be praying for that person the rest of the week. They truly displayed love by caring for one another. 
That's what we're supposed to be doing in connect groups. I mean, the time we got done just with prayer, it was already 8 o'clock. And before I came, I was planning on leaving by 8.30 to watch the basketball playoffs. But the love and care that was being displayed for me was something I didn't want to end. And I must admit, I must confess at first that I was convicted for being so selfish. For wanting Connect Group to end so I could go watch a silly game, right? But God was so gracious to me. He was so gracious to me as he gave me opportunity to see my own self-centered heart and allow to see the love of God put on display by these folks. Well, the Connect Group ended, I think, somewhere around 9.30 or something, I think it was. I mean, that's later than our worship leader, Luke, stays up. (laughs) Sorry, Luke. So you might not want to be able to go that one. I'm just kidding. He stays up till at least 9.45. But, but their group would have gone all night. They, if, if they needed to, if people were continuing to pour out their hearts, they would have continued to pray and serve one another. This is the type of love God wants us to put on display for those around us every day. The question is, Does our theology, does our doctrine drive us to love people? Does our faith in Christ grow us to love people all the more? Do we care for others like Christ cared for the disciples? Well, let's go back to our main passage, John 13. And we're now through, now we're going to be in verse 6, and I'm going to read through 6 through 11, which says, He, that is Christ, came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but after you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you are. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. So for time's sake, I will only be able to touch on this section. There's a lot to say about this. But Jesus is ready to wash Peter's feet, right? And Peter says, you're going to wash my feet, Lord? You're going to really wash my feet? And Jesus says, yes, I must. You don't understand why, but you will later. And Peter says, "Uh uh-uh, it's not happening. You're not washing my feet. There's no way. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, Peter, you're not my disciple. Peter says, in that case, you better wash all of me. I mean, my feet aren't the only thing that are dirty. You haven't saw the thoughts that went through my head this week. And Jesus says, no, Peter, you are clean. You are my disciple. But there is one that isn't within the group, talking about Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him. Which leads to point number three. The love of Christ does what is best for others. 
The love of Christ does what is best for others. I mean, Christ shows he cares by serving the disciples, but this love doesn't stop at serving because real love is not trying to make people happy alone. Christ's love is motivated to glorify the Father. First and foremost, Christ is focused on Peter's spiritual health above all else. In other words, Jesus is more focused on Peter's holiness than his happiness, right? Christ was doing what was best for Peter. So biblical love is really seen in how we care for others, right? It's seen in how we serve others, how we encourage others, but we also see it is seen in how we speak truth, how we challenge others, how we rebuke each other. And confront one another. Love is not one-dimensional. It is multi-dimensional, multi-faceted. Love displays itself differently pertaining to the situation that we're in. But the motivation behind biblical love is always the same. This love comes from a heart that is doing what is best for others because they are trying to glorify God instead of glorify man. So biblical love isn't always received well. It's not always being the nice guy in the group. I mean, think about it. What happened to Christ? The most loving, the most caring person to ever walk the face of the earth was rejected. He was despised, and he was hated by the world we're in right now. As we turn the spotlight off of Christ and look at ourselves, I wonder if we know such love. I wonder if we have such love. A love that cares for others, which means we serve one another. That's what we're called to do. But it also means we are willing to speak truth into each other's lives as well for our benefit. What about with our church family? Are we encouraging one another? Are we encouraging our brothers and sisters in Christ? Maybe it's pointing out something good we see in them. Maybe it's pointing out their giftedness. And just encouraging with that. But loving also means we're willing to confront sin as well in each other's lives because often we're blinded by our own sin. And we need brothers and sisters to come alongside of us and help us to see our sin. That's loving. Well, let's finish our passage. And we are now in John 12. I mean, John 13, 12 through 15. John 13, verses 12 through 15. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord? And you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Which leads to point number four. Under the love of Christ, we find humility. Under the love of Christ, we find humility. Colossians 3.12 says, Put on then, God's, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate, hearts, 
compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. 1 Peter 5.5 5 says, to clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Speaking of the church. So you might be thinking, okay, I got it. I got to be more humble. I got to walk in humility, right? I'm ready to go do that. That's going to be a great thing. After I'm done with this sermon, I'm going to go walk in humility. The only problem is what is humility, right? What is it? Humility in our Christian world today really isn't that popular. I mean, when is the last time you heard a sermon on humility? Most churches aren't really preaching on humility anymore. It's not that popular. We have heard all the five ways to finding a happy life or the five ways to finding your God-given purpose or five ways to having a happy marriage. But let me ask us, when is the last time we heard a sermon that said, here are five ways to be holy and humble in front of the Lord? That's what we're called to. But let me start by saying what it doesn't mean to be humble. What is the opposite of humility? And of course, the answer is pride. Right, you guys are good. Pride, exactly. We can see the contrast of pride and humility in our story. And I want to go back now to verse 2, which I mentioned we would go back to in John 13. So John 13, 2 says, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So Jesus washes Judas's feet, and we learn that Satan was working through Judas at this point already. So we have the epitome of humility in Christ, washing Judas's feet, and the epitome of pride in Satan, working through Judas. And if we tried to describe Satan, the word that readily comes to mind is prideful, right? Because he thought he was God. I mean, you have to be quite full of yourselves to think as a created being, you can thwart the creator himself, right? And we have to remember that Satan started out as a great angel of God, which meant he had been in the presence of Almighty God. So he saw God in all his glory and all his majesty. Satan had experienced God's pure love. His eternal kindness, his unrelenting grace, and yet Satan rejected it all. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, once said this, Pride seeks to un-God God. Pride seeks to un-God God. And that's exactly what Satan tried to attempt to do with God. Satan was controlled by pride because he was blinded by self Satan was drowning in self. So we conclude that pride, here's sort of a a short definition of pride, is simply a focus on self. It is being full of self. And biblically, we can see that pride takes different forms and different shapes as it can be the person who thinks that they are God's gift to the world, right? Which is arrogant pride, but also the person who plays the victim, who is full of self-pity, also struggles with pride as well. And you might be wondering why. Well, so the person who obsesses positively about themselves is focused on who? Self, right? And the person who obsesses negatively about themselves is focused on who? 
self. So both are full of pride. And this morning, as we think about our battle with sin, I wonder if we see the sin of pride in our lives. I wonder if we take pride seriously. I mean, think about it. It was the downfall of Satan. It's a serious matter. Well, we still haven't answered the question, what is humility? You probably forgot what we were even talking about, right? But if pride is being focused on self, being filled with self, then humility would be the opposite of pride, right? Which leads to point number five. Humility is focusing on God and others instead of self. Let me say that again. Humility is focusing on God and others instead of focusing on self. John 13, our main text, going back to verses 14 and 15, Jesus says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. So Christ displays humility to the disciples. Christ focuses on others instead of himself, even though he's about to face rejection, beatings, Mistreatments, and finally, death, right? Philippians 2, 3, and 4 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you not only look to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Paul here tells us, don't be selfish. And he's talking to the church. Don't be selfish towards one another. Don't put yourself first, but others. It's about living for others. It's about sacrificing for others. Put others above yourself. Place other people's priorities, wants, needs, and desires above your own wants priorities, needs, and desires. Let's imagine for a minute. We just won two tickets for an all-paid vacation to Hawaii. Sounds pretty nice, right? I mean, this is a trip of a lifetime. I mean, you always wanted to go to Hawaii. You've heard the stories about the vibrant blue water. Right? The picture-perfect sunsets, the giant volcanoes, the, the magnificent waterfalls. And then God reminds you of the verse that says, put others above yourself. And you're like, why did God remind me of that right now? And then, of course, someone pops in your mind. John and Stacy randomly come to your mind. People that seem to be always content, always joyful, regardless of their situation. And you know, though you don't ever get to go on a vacation, it's just too expensive for them. They can't afford that. They both work crazy hours and they haven't been able to go somewhere in years. So you know what you do? You joyfully... Give them the tickets and put their wants and desires above your own wants and desires. Amen? Really? And you get excited about the fact that they are going to experience some of the amazing sights, the very ones that you are ready to experience. 
and you realize they are going to have the great time that you were going to have. And you rejoice, knowing that you are loving them like you love yourself. You are putting their desires above your own. Church, this is what we are called to as disciples of Christ. This is what we're called to every day. We have the opportunity to humble ourselves and put others above ourselves because of our love for God. So let me end by giving us some fruits of a humble person. Fruit number one, the humble trust God. Fruit number one says that the humble trust God. They know that God is good, that he is faithful, that God is trustworthy, and they walk in faith knowing that even through the trials and the struggles, they can rest because they know they trust the character of God. Fruit number two. The humble are overwhelmed by God's grace. Fruit number two says that the humble are overwhelmed by God's grace. They know that they should have gone to hell, but God in his mercy and kindness gave them grace instead. And as they mature in Christ, they see the depth of their own sinfulness. But as they see more of their own depravity, they also see the magnitude, what God had sacrificed for them. They're in awe of God's grace that has been poured out on them. Amen? Fruit number three. The humble pray and meditate on Scripture. Uh, Fruit number three. The humble pray and meditate on Scripture. They have a prayer life and spend time studying God's Word because they depend on God instead of themselves. It was Martin Luther who said this horribly convicting quote when he said, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. I mean, that's unbelievable, right? Fruit number four, the humble are thankful and grateful. Fruit number four says the humble are thankful and grateful. They have a disposition of thankfulness towards God and others. They don't expect anything from God and others. So when they get something, they are very appreciative. They are grateful. They know everything in their life is grace. There are many others to say, but I'll just give us one more here. Fruit number five. The humble focus on Christ. The humble focus on Christ. They live for Christ. Why? Because they're emptied of themselves, right? They have gotten rid of themselves, and it's a daily process that they do every day and fill themselves back with Christ. He is their example, and they strive to follow him every step of the way. So as we think of the fruits of humility, the manifestations of humility in the believer's life, I wonder if we see the fruits of humility in our own lives. I wonder if others would describe us as being humble. Well, we have a lot that we've talked about, a lot to chew on this morning. So I will end by reading Christ's humility that he put in display for us to follow. 
Philippians 2, 5 and 11, which has already been read by the worship team, but I will do it again. And it says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's go to him in prayer. Holy Father, how humbled we are to know what you call us to as believers. We may be thinking as we hear trying to care for others more than ourselves, try to be humble and live a humble life when we struggle with pride so much that it's uh, almost overwhelming, daunting for us, Father. I ask that you allow us to remember that we don't do this in our own strength. We do it by depending on the power of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. So help us, Father, to confess sins like pride and see where we struggle with pride in our daily lives and repent of such sins and turn to Christ, recognizing he will change our prideful heart and fill us with humility. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the life transformation that you allow us to see even in our own lives as the Spirit changes us from the inside out. We thank you for this morning. In Christ's name, amen.